I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm Scott Stern. And we are here with another episode of S2D, the Symptom to Diagnosis podcast. This podcast teaches evidence-based strategies for diagnosing common medical symptoms. We begin each episode with a case unknown to one of us. We then discuss five high-yield features that help to accurately diagnose the cause of the symptom at hand. We then return to our case before finishing up with a discussion of fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge pertaining to the weak symptom. The cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patients and privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. What are we talking about today, Scott? I believe we're talking about edema, and you are the expert of the day, and I understand you have a case to present to me. I do. Uh-oh. You know, we try, we've talked about this, we talked about this while we were planning the podcast, to not go with total zebras and make this like a magic show of, you know, trying to figure things out. And I think we would both agree that we think it's more important to learn how to do the common things perfectly before, or at least as well as, learning to do the uncommon things well. But this week, I'm going with something unusual, but it's actually pretty straightforward. Okay, well, you're making me nervous, but okay. <laughs> I hope I'm not a complete idiot, but go ahead with the case. It's funny. I thought of this case, and then when I actually looked it up to look in detail, I was like, that's even a better case than I thought it was. Oh, joy. Okay, so this is a 65-year-old man who has well-compensated alcoholic cirrhosis, and he calls on a Friday afternoon, of course, uh, with about seven days of increasing lower extremity edema, okay? And he says, I basically never have swelling in my legs. I see a little bit of line in my socks at the end of the day, but that's it. And he says, now tree trunks. And I was like, really? And really seven days? He goes, yeah, seven days. He's got no other symptoms. This is all on the phone. Asked him a ton of questions. The only thing I could get out was that he says, you know, sometimes he's got some kind of palpitations in the morning. And that's it. He's got cirrhosis with varices, actually, um, but perfectly compensated. He's got high blood pressure. He's on amlodipine and Inderol. And I'll just tell you, on Friday, I was like, you know, I'll see you Monday morning, but why don't you over the weekend um, take some Lasix? I gave him 20 milligrams of Lasix a day with 20 milligrams of potassium. And I asked him to come in before our visit on Monday to get some labs done. And so maybe I'll leave it there for you. What, What would you be thinking at this point? Oh my goodness. Well, so a lot of thoughts jumped to mind, but let's try to be systematic. So he is bilateral from what you said, lower extremity edema. So that certainly focuses the differential diagnosis on either things that cause lower oncotic pressure or high hydrostatic pressure. Permeability would be somewhat less likely in somebody who's not acutely sick with it. Amlodipine can give lower extremity edema, of course, but normally not severe. You know, it's normally one to two plus pretibial edema, and that's about all you'd see. Certainly the fact he's cirrhotic would make you wonder if this is just a cirrhosis, but you're kind of telling me he's always been controlled and now it's much worse and that's peculiar. I would wonder about what the cause of the cirrhosis is because some of those causes also go back to other organs. So for instance, if he has an alcoholic cirrhotic, you'd wonder about alcoholic heart disease or cardiomyopathy. And if he had one of the chronic hepatitides, he could have glomerulonephritis from that. 
Um, and so, you know, I'd want to know more about the cause. To start off with, I'd probably start off with a, um, and I'd also want to know about his belly exam. Does he have ascites or not have ascites? And I asked him about that, and he said, no, pants all fit him well. He's a guy who works every day, so he actually puts on pants and a belt every day, everything fine. He's not been sitting around during a pandemic wearing pajama bottoms every day. So that's a little bit surprising if it was cirrhosis. So one would have expected he'd be accumulating ascites as well, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I'd want to know his albumin. I want to know his PTPTTs, LFTs. You know, you can have retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy that causes bilateral lower extremity edema. And he's how old did you say? In his 60s? He's 65. So, you know, prostate cancer can metastasize to the retroperitoneum and cause bilateral lower extremity edema. Um, but I'd probably get a brain natriuretic peptide as a screening test for heart failure. The albumin will help with our sarcotic pressure. We need to know his electrolytes, his BUN and creatinine to start, and a UA to look to see if there's anything. Does he have proteinuria, nephrotic syndrome, and so on. So okay. wide array of tests to start. Okay. So I had told you that it was his liver disease was was from alcohol, but you obviously weren't really listening. Um, ah. But so I ordered all the tests you asked for. Okay. And so he comes to me in the office and his comprehensive metabolic panel, kidney function, liver function, normal, as it all has always been, actually. His INR was 1.0. His BNP was 1,824. His urinalysis was normal with no protein. And actually, let me just ask you, do you have a sense of, you know, I think we both know well, and everybody probably knows well, the idea that BNP is very good for ruling out heart failure in someone presenting with dyspnea. Do you have any idea about test characteristics in the setting of just edema? I don't. I've never yeah. seen that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's even been studied in yeah. the different... Uh, I suspect all the studies have gathered everyone who's being evaluated rather than discriminating based right. on what the presenting symptom was. Right. Yeah, I, I, I was just looking it up in kind of the 15 minutes before we sat down here and couldn't find it. Um, I'll, keep, I'll keep searching. I guess if anybody knows the answer to that out there in the podcast <laughs> world, tweet at me with the answer. And a reference, of course. So on physical exam, I will give you his vital signs first. So can I say what I would look for? Because oh, sure. it's probably, you know, this is one of those times where it's incredibly important to look for things that you're looking for specifically. So, so are you saying that you only see things that you're looking for? I think you see them. But there's a lot of data that says actually when you look specifically and with intention for things, you're more likely to find them. Don't you agree? I absolutely agree. So, you know, his vital signs would be important. You could also check his blood pressure, make sure there's not pulses paradox, you know, in case he had tamponade. You could check an S3 Gallup and JVD are going to be important. And obviously for murmurs, um, that's going to be the highlight given the BNP being that high. But go ahead. You didn't ask for the one important piece of information. So his blood pressure was 120 over 50. Okay. Um, respiration's normal, temperature normal, pulse of 96%, uh, pulse ox of 96%. Would you like to know his pulse? Why not? His pulse was 36. That's not normal. Um, his weight was up 12 pounds since the last time I'd seen him, which was actually only about uh, two months before. And his physical exam, other than three plus edema up to the knees, was really unremarkable, except for this bradycardia. So he's presenting with heart block, with heart failure? So an EKG in the room showed third degree heart block. Oh my God. Um, admitted that day, 
had a pacemaker that day. And interestingly, was diuresed while he was in the hospital, um, went home off diuretics, and this has been years and never recurred. So proving once again that vital signs are vital, Yes. right? Well, how could I not ask you for the vital signs first? All of our students are gonna be talking to me about this case. Can we restart again and re-record? All right, so I think you're gonna, having embarrassed myself, I'm now perspiring over here. Can you give us uh, five key points about diagnosing edema? Sure, and a lot of this is actually gonna be restating all the things that you talked about as you went through the differential, since you did such an excellent job. (laughs) So point one is basically to know the pathophysiology. So edema occurs, and you mentioned, I think all of these, when there's increased hydrostatic pressure, capillary hydrostatic pressure. So basically something pushing from the inside out. So that's certainly what you'd see with, say, heart failure or an obstruction of the vasculature. Decreased plasma oncotic pressure. So decreased of what's pulling the fluid in. Um, And so that's really any hypoalbuminemic state. Um, increased capillary permeability, that's going to be you know, sepsis, burns, things like that, where your capillaries are leaking fluid out. Increased interstitial oncotic pressure, which is pretty unusual. The only thing that I could think of that does that is mixedema, right, mm. where you're sort of sucking fluid out of the capillaries. And then lymphatic obstruction. There's always a small gradient of favoring the filtering of fluid from the vessels into the interstitium. And it's the lymphatics whose job it is to suck up that extra fluid. And so if your lymphatics are obstructed, you're gonna get um, you're gonna get edema. Yeah, it's interesting. I just had a patient who showed up in clinic with one leg that was severely swollen mm-hmm. and they did an ultrasound to look for a DVT, which was negative, mm-hmm. but it was very impressive when mm-hmm. we did a CAT scan and he indeed had metastatic prostate cancer right? blocking up his lymphatics. Yeah. And, and I, those are so often, it's unclear if it's venous congestion, right, or lymphatic obstruction, or maybe a combination of the right. two. Right, and actually for him, that's true, because he had some, you know, the venous system, while not clotted, wasn't as open as normal. Yeah, yeah. So you're actually getting increased capillary hydrostatic pressure and decreased lymphatic drainage, right. sort of a, a two-hit um, effect. All right, so that's our pathophysiology. Do you have a second key point for us? <laughs> So the second key point is, even though that's the pathophysiology, and it's really good to know that, I think the differential diagnosis is exactly how you looked at it. It's looking at distribution. And this is really the first pivotal point, you know, kind of as you get into the differential diagnosis. So when you see bilateral lower extremity edema, or I guess bilateral edema anywhere, you're looking at a systemic cause. So that's heart failure, liver failure, cirrhosis, kidney failure, um, medications, okay? Uh, Many, many medications uh, will, as a side effect, effect cause edema, low albumin states we talked about, and proximal vascular lymphatic obstruction, as we just discussed. So, you know, maybe high enough that you're out of the unilateral obstruction and and up to the bilateral obstruction. Okay. I'm going to move on to the third key point. Go ahead. Go Uh, for it. So third key point is tests, and you sort of jumped all over this. You know, when I hear about bilateral obstruction, uh, what I think about is I'm going to ask a bunch of questions about medications, but I'm pretty much always going to test the heart, the kidney, and the liver. Um, And so I'm looking at liver function tests. I'm looking at INR. I'm looking at albumin. I'm looking at renal function and also definitely, definitely, definitely a urinalysis because I want to see proteinuria. And then I'm usually, besides really taking my time to examine the heart, you know, much more than I would in sort of a 
regular office visit that you know I'm not really expecting to find anything. Those are the times I'm really going to have the person lie down, shirt off, listening for an S3, getting them into a left lateral decubitus position, listening for murmurs. And then I'm going to think about venous insufficiency, right, for bilateral edema. If it's unilateral edema, I'm sort of all about what's obstructing this person. So I'm going to be thinking about, you know, maybe a D-dimer if the person's at low risk or I can't get an ultrasound the same day, and then almost certainly an ultrasound, um, unless this is, you know, localized edema that it's clearly because of, you know, an underlying arthritis or cellulitis or something like that. You know, one of the things that's tough about that clinically is you often see people who have edema intermittently and that it's a little bit worse. And, you know, I have to say, you know, I ponder blood clots more often than I see them, but since we can't afford to miss them, I'm always on the side of testing. Right. And fortunately, you're not doing venography, right? Right, right. It's an ultrasound. It's fast. It's cheap. It's non-invasive. Um, and it can save their life. Right. It can, you can save your life. Okay, so the fourth key point. We're up to the fourth key point. <laughs> this is like the classic, you know, getting into the weeds internal medicine thing, um, is that pretty much every cause of edema you're going to come up with opens up an entirely another differential diagnosis, okay? So your job, sort of, once you determine the cause of the edema, is to go further and figure out what's the cause of the cause of the edema. So what I mean by that is, is if you find out like, oh, you know, there's a cardiac cause to this edema. Well, you know, is it HEFREF? Is it HEFPEF? Is it constrictive cardiac disease? Is it pulmonary hypertension? And then each of those has its own differential diagnosis, right? You mentioned, you know, cirrhosis. Psh, Whatever, you know, that's an end-stage liver disease. What caused that? Maybe it doesn't matter for cirrhosis, but for reasons you pointed out, it may. Certainly kidney disease, right? Every cause of nephrotic syndrome will cause um, edema, so you got to know that. Are you going to walk us through all the causes of nephrotic syndrome and glomerular nephritis? I was kind of hoping for that. I'm sure you have them written on your walls in your office. Um, <laughs> And then the fifth and final key point is don't forget about medications. I am amazed at how often I see patients with edema related to medications. And I don't think it's missed commonly, but I think maybe it often comes up a little bit too late in the evaluation. So calcium channel blockers for me, uh, you know, a lot of people are on calcium channel blockers. These days, mostly I'm lodipine. And like all side effects, it's complicated. Often it's right away, but you can have someone who's been on amlodipine for four years and then their edema gets worse probably because they've got a little bit more venous insufficiency than they used to, and now it's become important. Uh, hydralazine, minoxidil, uh, as, as less commonly used antihypertensives, just about any hormone that we use, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, glucocorticoids, all do it. I'm sure your favorite, Scott, is NSAIDs, because you always seem to be all about every side effect of NSAIDs. And then thiazolidiones, which we don't use that much for diabetes. One of the reasons is, is because they cause a lot of edema. And so we've sort of stopped using those. That's them all over NSAIDs because I get edema when I take them, which is really irritating. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember, I think we were probably the only two people old enough on the podcast to remember minoxidil's use. I mean, it used to be used a lot for renal failure. Right, right. And uh, wow, people got a lot of edema on right. minoxidil. And I think out of my whole patient panel of whatever, you know, 800, 900 patients, I think I have, you know, two patients on it now. You know? And you know, it's funny, it's Rogaine, right? So people right, may right. not know on the podcast that right. minoxidil is the same substance that's used to make your hair grow. And what the reason that was discovered actually is when we had people on minoxidil, they had tremendous hair growth down their forehead and all over. And it was really quite a remark. That's how somebody figured out, hey, maybe if we just pick this a staff, it will help. Yeah. I, I don't think it's helping so much. Okay, so... 
Is there anything else to say about our case? How no. did he do? What happened? I was going to say, usually we go back to the case and there's nothing more to say. Um, person did terrifically. Our skilled electrophysiology people were all over it. I think left the hospital either 24 hours or 48 hours later. And this is one of those things that now just lives on a problem list. And, you know, I think has actually already got in his pacemaker battery <laughs> replaced at this point. Your teeth must have fallen out when you yeah. saw his heart rate was 36. You know, who would think that he calls you up with some swelling? Oh, come in on Monday. I don't actually know that your pulse is 36. That's unbelievable. What I remember is actually immediately getting into an argument about you need to come in the hospital. I don't need to come in the hospital. I just have swelling. I was like, you need to come in the hospital. Um, well, it's lucky these lower pacemakers were working. Yes. Okay, let's go on now to fingerprints, common misconceptions, pet peeves, and other random pearls of knowledge. Adam, okay. got some fingerprints. Fingerprints. So this is a little bit off the subject, but not really. Caput medusae. Um, so those are the uh, large dilated veins that one gets around the umbilicus. So if you look at those as a test for cirrhosis, the likelihood ratio is 9.5, okay? So if you're seeing that in a patient who, I don't know, has edema, uh, you know, has a bloated belly, you should be thinking cirrhosis. And as I prepared for this, I learned a new eponym. I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I think it's the Crevulier Baumgarten murmur. Have you ever wow. heard that? Oh, the, the well-known Cuvulier. <laughs> what is that? So that is a venous hum over the umbilicus. There you go. <laughs> Unimportant. Okay. Move on. There we go. Okay. Cap at Medusa. Good old head. All right. So um, while we're on uh, symptoms or signs of some of the diseases that cause edema, of course, heart failure. Um, S3 Gallup and JVD are very specific with likelihood ratios of 11 and 5.1. And I just want to emphasize, you know, you got to get used to looking for jugular venous distension, putting the person in the right position, really looking at the, the side of the neck for a minute. There's many good YouTube videos out there if you haven't looked at them because it's very helpful. Um, so I look for those routinely. I'd add the S3 too. You got to listen for an S3 because if you just do a quick listen off and you'll miss it. I almost feel it as like a vibration rather than a real heart. It's true. Sound. It's almost something you feel. Yeah. It's a weird comment, but it's true. All right, misconceptions. So I get, think my misconception uh, is that diuretics work for venous stasis disease, or maybe I should say that diuretics are the treatment for venous stasis disease. They're not. The way you help venous stasis disease is you have people wear compression stockings, you have people elevate their legs when they're at rest, you have people exercise, so they're working the muscles there, which are helping to push the fluid back. And venous stasis disease often comes, I think, of the of the valves and the veins, which help that fluid to only move in one direction as the muscles in the leg pump. You know, if you remember from anatomy, those valves are like tissue paper thin. And as we get older, those just sort of poop out. Um, and so they need a little bit of help. And the help is usually from external compression. And if you want to use a little bit of diuretic to sort of help out the compression stockings, great, but they're not going to do it alone. But who wants to wear compression stockings? I mean, I have this problem, Dr. Sifu, and I don't <laughs> want to be walking around in compression stockings. Yeah, it's a tough life. All right. So uh, my misconception is people often expect DVTs to present in a very kind of classic way with a painful cord and pain and swelling. And the reality is patients often only have one of those multiple things. As a matter of fact, only 40% of patients who have DVT actually have pain. They might just be swollen on that side. And they don't even have to have edema. So 80% of people with a DVT have edema, but 20% don't. So essentially what that means is anybody who comes in with any complaints about the calf, you have to think about DVT. Oh, it's hurting. 
doesn't matter whether it is edema or not. Get the ultrasound or a D-dimer. Oh, I have pain and you don't see anything. Just do it uh, because it's tricky business. That is a great point. That is a great point. And I think the nice thing now is with D-dimer, because you will risk stratify people. It's right. not like we're saying everybody who ever comes in with trace edema on one side needs an ultrasound. Agreed. You know, you risk stratify, you figure out, do you need to test at all? It, do you need a D-dimer? Do you need an ultrasound? And it's probably worth pointing out, which I can't believe we haven't talked about. So when people get edema, it's always worse on the left, like slight bilateral lower extremity edema because the circulation has to sort of cross further over. So generally left a little bit greater than right usually is going to be asymmetric. That's really interesting. Huh. That's a great point, Scott. I would not have thought about that, but that's great. Pet peeves. Um, this one goes way back for me. Um, the ability to assuredly rule in mm -hmm. or rule out ascites based on the physical exam. Our physical exam is not good for ascites. And I think as our nation gets more and more obese, the test characteristics of our exam probably gets worse and worse. I point this out because a thousand years ago when I was a resident, I consulted a general surgeon this is what we did at the time for a G-tube on a patient. And the surgeon was like, I am not doing a G-tube on this patient without an ultrasound because this person has ascites and spelled out ascites in the chart for me so I could see it. And I was so happy when the ultrasound came back negative and I could write in the <laughs> chart, this patient does not have ascites and I spelled out ascites. It was quite mature of me. Oh yes, bring us back to residency. Okay. My pet peeve is really, I often hear when people present cases of edema that they actually haven't taken the step to figure out if it's unilateral or bilateral. And so just as we've already mentioned, use that paradigm. It's very helpful for at least a start. That's great. That's sort of like medications. You know, you're probably going to get to the right place, but it's going to take a whole lot longer. You'll probably put through the patient, through more tests. You'll probably spend more money. All right, clinical pearls. Clinical pearls. Don't just look for the legs when you're looking for edema. I think we've been very focused on lower extremity edema, but edema can be anywhere, right? And your differential is going to change if you know, the person has anasarca rather than lower extremity edema. And especially in the hospital, many people, you'll put them to bed for a day and their lower extremity edema will go away, but they have tons of sacral edema, right? And so you got to make sure that, especially for me, it's when you're examining people in bed, check their legs. Also, you know, get behind them, check their lower back, check their pelvic area, check their belly, see if they have a fluid wave, listen to their lungs. You're looking for extra fluid everywhere. You know, now that you're on it, we should probably mention the few other places people occasionally complain of localized edema. So if you see upper extremity edema, you should, especially unilateral, you should always be worried. Something's really wrong. Uh, typically an upper extremity DVT, uh, you know, you want to know if they had a catheter in or not, but you need to look. And the other one that's tricky, I found, is superior vena cava syndrome. So, you know, when you obstruct your superior vena cava, the classic syndrome is people are plethoric and they're swollen. But if you don't know that person, I have to say all the people I've seen with SVC syndrome, the family complained that they were swollen. And I looked at the person and said, they look okay to me. Right. So if a family says the face is swollen, then you need to take that seriously and think about that. Plethoric, I say. Plethoric. Okay. What did I say? You said plethoric. I say plethoric. Ah, well, they potato, potato. <laughs> um, also, where I thought you were going to go is there's the thing like periorbital edema. Yeah. Foreskin edema, which I often think of as part of angioedema that you see. When you see that sort of really delicate soft tissue without more diffuse edema. Although penile edema can be prostate cancer. So when you get True. edema in the genitals, True. you have to be very concerned about an obstruction of the lymphatics again. True. 
All right. So my clinical pearl was um, a little bit more about management. We don't talk about much about management, but uh, one of the things that comes up all the time in the primary care group is using diuretics for heart failure. And you have to be willing to tolerate a little bit of a bump in a BUN and a creatinine to get somebody euvolemic. That's okay. You know, we're really aiming uh, to get them. And you have to look at whether they have edema, JVD, S3 gallop, maybe even a chest X-ray and decide about how to push it. But we're not really focusing on yeah. therapy. And also that's kind of the goal. I mean, often when you see people come in and if they've got a BUN creatinine of 10 and 1, you're like, I'm not doing enough here. Right. Um, it's true. Okay. Right. My last pearl, I think, is more of, I don't know, it's like cocktail party conversation. So it takes about three liters of extra fluid to cause edema. You know, before that, I guess you've got a lot of interstition that you can put away fluid before you actually start to swell. And remember that, you know, a liter is a kilogram. So three liters of fluid, when you start to see edema, that's six and a half extra pounds of fluid. That's a lot. And it helps, though, because you can tell patients, you know, when they come in with edema and you can say, you know, we've got six pounds of fluid we got to take off. You. So this happens when I eat Chinese food. <laughs> I get six pounds of water. <laughs> well, it's impressive. So we hope you found this episode of the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast useful and a bit enjoyable. As a reminder, our textbook, Symptom to Diagnosis, an Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print, on your handheld device, and in a fully searchable mode via the Access Medicine website available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. The music for this, the S2D podcast, is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Thank you. Thank you.